0: I'm Sue Hecht and I will be doing the Bible study for the next six weeks while counting this week. So five more after this. Lord, we do want to pause and give thanks to you for your grace and your goodness in our lives. Lord, thank you that you have given us your word that we um, can study it, can know it, that your word is living and active in our lives. Thank you that... You care about us, that you desire for us to know you better, and your word is your most direct communication with us. So I pray that you'll guide our time tonight, that we would draw together as as brothers and sisters, that we would see you more clearly as a result of our time here tonight. pray that your spirit would be the one who would guide us and enlighten us to teach us your truth. We pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as some of you know, many of you know probably, I did not grow up with any kind of religious background. Anything. Nothing. My mom grew up going to church every Sunday. Perfect Sunday school attendance for, I don't know, like 12, 13 years. She was very proud of that fact. But when she left home, she left the church, met my dad, who at that point... Didn't want anything to do with organized religion. So when I became a believer at the age of 16, I started going to church. My dad was not very happy with this. And I was going to Bible study. And he was trying to set me straight <laughs> and let me know that the Bible was just a bunch of myths, fables. It really wasn't true. Just You have to understand that. He wanted me to read The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine rather than read the Bible. And I'm sure many of you know people like that too. So how would you explain what the Bible is to someone like that? What are your thoughts on that? How do you think about the Bible? What is the Bible?
1: To me, I was being the Word of God. The Word, word of, of God? God. God. Okay. Okay. I
0: a and true. And that it's really true, yeah. So it's not just myths or fables or made-up stories. What else? I see There's a sacred document. Sacred, okay, meaning?
1: Okay, It's
0: not just a regular book. Okay, good. What else?
2: Sure, me, I would tend to go into the
0: historical side of it. Okay. It's a better record as
2: a manuscript than any other book ever.
0: Okay. So it's actually recording history as well. Yeah, it's and, and it's true not, in that respect.
2: There's evidence of it being... Historically um, sustained than the text of any of the
0: other things that we take for a fact. So it's very well preserved that way. And I mean, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as many of you may know, was just huge in biblical studies because it showed the consistency in the Hebrew manuscripts across the centuries that. The Hebrew Scriptures were being preserved over time so well, and then even when you get into the New Testament, we've got so many um, manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts, but we have copies of those that are showing incredible consistency. And so we've got a lot of reliability evidence that these are historically reliable documents. Good. Anything else?
2: Something. <laughs> Yes. What
1: did you to me. The Bible is to believe and to be in yourself. Good. That's what it is. You don't believe and you don't have any more heart, forget about it.
0: Okay, so the Bible is something that you really either believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, then it, inside. it's something that it, it resides in you. You know, when you look at, at the scriptures... Mm-hmm. And you look at the role of the Word of God and the role of the Spirit of God, they go hand in hand. They overlap. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God in our life. The Word of God is used by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> they go hand in hand. And so in in the sense, you know, as the author of Hebrews says, the, the Word of God is living and active in our lives. It's not just a stale document. Well, in your notes, in the introduction, I printed out a couple of verses from Second Peter that might be familiar to you. It says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of a classic text that shows us that the scriptures we have are both a divine product and a human product. So in terms of being a human product, it is written by human writers to real human audiences and um, situated in a society and a culture and a particular time in history Because of that, the scriptures reflect culture and history, they reflect the personality and style of the human author, they are situational, meaning that they are written for a purpose, to address a certain situation in a community in a certain historical time period, and that they're shaped by normal rules of grammar and language. So in a sense, scripture is literature And it's history, but it's also theology. It's also teaching us about who God is. So it's not only a a human product, but it's also a divine product. And because we understand that the one author behind all of the Bible is the Lord, we also know that it is delivered to people everywhere for all time. It's timeless in that respect. And because it's a divine product, it has one perfect author who breathed out his message without error. It can be used to clarify itself. If there are passages in Scripture that are unclear, because we know God is the divine author over all of the human authors who wrote the individual books, we can know that there is consistency so we can interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So with unclear passages, we can look at other passages to see if that can help clarify what's unclear. And we know it has enduring authority and that it's relevant for all time. So all of the things that everyone mentioned here applies because of this perhaps two layers may be a way to think about it. We've got the human author of the text, but we also have the divine author who is sovereign over all of it. And because God is sovereign, all of it, there's another aspect of Scripture that is is important for us to understand. And sometimes I think as believers, we tend to take bits of the Bible at a time. And what we fail to realize is that all of it fits under a story. That there is a story from Genesis to Revelation that is unfolding because it's God's story of how he's working his plan out in human history. So people talk about a grand narrative of the Bible. Some will even say that it's not just a story, but actually a drama, because it is moving towards a climax and a resolution. And I think when we think about it as believers, we realize, well, yeah, we know that things aren't done yet. (laughs) We know Yeshua's coming back. And when he comes back, then things will begin to come to completion. God's kingdom is here in part now. There's an already sense in which the kingdom of God is here now. But there's a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God that we know is coming. So it's with that view that I want us to keep in mind as we go through these next few weeks together is to keep in view this grand narrative of Scripture. Because the topic that we're going to be addressing each week has to do with the description of God as creator of heaven and earth. And when you look from Genesis to Revelation, you see that this description of God is one that is present throughout. So I think David probably introduced a little bit of why this topic and why I'm teaching this. But when I did my Ph.D. work, one of the things that struck me about this particular topic is that when we get into the New Testament, Paul uses this particular description of God when he preaches to predominantly Gentile audiences. This is a classic description of God from the Old Testament, the creator of heaven and earth, that Paul is using to address non-Jews who are Torah illiterate to explain salvation. The Good News of Yeshua. So my question was, why that description of God versus any other? There are a lot of ways that God is referred to in the Old Testament. A lot of titles for God. Why this particular one? Creator of heaven and earth. And the answers that I kept coming up with as I was doing research on these particular passages in Acts 14 and 17 just didn't seem adequate. Many scholars would say, well, you know, Paul's just referring to general revelation that anybody who doesn't know anything about the Torah would have some sense of, you know, God is out there. The problem for me, though, is in the first century, you had very few people who were atheists. Most people believed there was some deity behind all of creation. They just tended to think it was multiple deities and not just one. So again, my question, why that description versus any other? So that got me into the Old Testament and looking at passages. Why, where did this description show up? And what seemed to be significant about that particular title in the context in which it occurred? And as I traced it through the Pentateuch, through the prophets, through the writings, I started to see a pattern. And as we went into the New Testament, to see how Yeshua referred to that title, and how that title seemed to be applied to him too. And then how that title again showed up in the early church in Acts. And then again, towards the end of the New Testament, and finally in Revelation, that title of God is still predominant. It's still important. So as we go through these um, different portions of the scriptures, well, We'll break it down over these six weeks. We'll start off at the beginning, with Genesis. And then in the next two weeks, we'll look at the prophets, just some key passages in the prophets and in the writings. And then in, in weeks four and five, we'll look at what uh, the Gospels have to say and Yeshua has to say about this title, and then Acts and finally Revelations and uh, Second Peter. And every week I want us to reflect on what difference does it make in our lives today then? If this is an important title for God throughout the canon of scripture, how is it important for us today? What does it mean for us? So like I said, we're going to start with the beginning. Genesis 1. So if you've got your Bibles, open up with me. Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Oh, and I should, I should also mention the first page that you have on, the, on your handout is just an overview for you to see where this description of God shows up throughout the scriptures and I've done studies on most of these passages um, we're not going to cover all of these in our time together
2: though but
0: just to kind of give you an idea where does it, where does it show up so we'll make reference to some of these along the way So open up to Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning. The first couple of verses say, in the beginning, and I'm reading from the NIV, by the way, for any of you who are wondering what translation I'll be using. Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that one verse has a lot packed into it. And the grammar of this verse has made the interpretation of it uh, a little bit more challenging than perhaps meets the eye. But here, God is referred to as Elohim, who has created the heavens and the earth. In some translations, um, this particular clause is translated as a dependent clause. In other words, Some of the translations will read when God began to create or in the beginning when God created. Do any of you have a translation that reads something like that? So that would make it a dependent clause, making it dependent on the next verse that comes. Most translators, though, agree that this is probably to be taken as an independent clause, which is how we tend to understand it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, well, if it is an independent clause, as as most people seem to think, and I tend to agree as well. The next question then is, is this a summary statement of what follows, or is this the first step in a series of steps that are going to follow it? Because when you look in in the, the next verse, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So some people would say, well, actually this is a sequence. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the next step, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then moving on from there, God said, let there be light. Now I tend to think that's got more problems than it is helpful. I don't think that's the intention here of the writer of Genesis describing the creation account. What seems to be the case and what is consistent with Hebrew literature and Semitic literature is that it's common for a general statement to be made initially and then what follows is the specific unpacking of that statement the specification so this first statement in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth is a summary statement of what's going to be told next <laughs> so the rest of the chapter is unfolding what it, what does this mean what does this look like and that's what we have with um, the next statement there in, chap- in verse two now the earth was formless and empty and again these two hebrew terms here there's some discussion Is it this sense as the NIV renders it formless and empty, meaning kind of a blank slate? Or does it mean that it's chaotic and unorganized? Because these two words can can mean either. The semantic range encompasses both. I think when we look at the context in which these terms occur, though, that it's more likely that this is a blank slate that's being described. It's formless, it's void. Because when you look at what is being described from this first statement that, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what we have starting in verse 3 is a description of primarily matters that have to do with the earthly existence. We've got the stars being in place and the, the moon and the sun being placed in the sky. But the heavens are not the focus, really, of this creation account that we have in Chapter 1. So it seems to be telling us creation from the perspective of humanity and focusing on the earthly existence. So we've got the the earth is formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Then we've got the account of the seven days. So what I'd like us to do is everybody look in your scriptures and tell me what's happening in each day. So just do some observation. And if you want to jot down on your outline what we've got happening here. What do we have in day one? What does it say? Does anyone, Would anyone read uh, verses 3 to 5 for us aloud?
1: Yes. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light and made the spirit. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness the whole night. And the evening <coughs> and the morning were the first day. Okay,
0: so there's the account of the first day. And what, what's, what's happening there?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Specifically, how? Okay, so we've got the separation of light and dark. So darkness was the state initially, and then God said, let there be light, and then he separates the light and the darkness. What about day two? Would someone read... um Verses
2: six through eight for us. And God said, Let it
1: be the spans for the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the spans and separated the waters. They were under the spans. From the waters, they were above the spans. And was so. And God called the spans heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day.
0: Okay, so what do we have going on here? God is separating again. What is he separating? The
1: the the from the Okay,
0: so we've got the separation of the waters above and below. And then it says God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. So, And then in verse 8, and God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So we've got the the waters below, the waters above, and the sky. Right? Okay. What about verses...
1: Nine through thirteen, day three. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Okay, and
0: then verse 11 to
1: 13 oh that's great then God said let the earth bring forth vegetation every kind of plant that bears seed and every kind of fruit tree on earth that bears fruit with its seed in it and so it happened. The earth brought forth every kind of plant that bear bears seed, and every kind of fruit tree mm-hmm. on earth that bears fruit, which it seed with its seed within. God saw how good it was. The evening came, and the morning followed. The third day. Great. So we're
0: up to day three now, and we've got the repetition of the word "good" in both in this within this section, right? So now God is saying, "What He has made is good. It is good." So repeated words are key um, ideas. What's happening on this day? If we could summarize.
1: That God was nurturing the earth with substance. Okay. So
0: we've got the earth showing up, right? Now we've got. Um The waters below the sky are being gathered into one place and the dry g- ground is appearing. So we've got that, and then the vegetation is being added to the ground, right? So we've got um, the waters are gathered. Land is revealed and plants up here. What
1: about day four? God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs, seasons, days, and years. And let them be for light, uh, make the two great lights, the larger light to rule the day, and the smaller light to rule the night, and the stars. God put them in the drum of the sky to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. So there was evening, and there was morning, and fourth day.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So now we've got another declaration that it is good what God has done on this day. And what has he done? Again, to summarize, he says, "Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be as signs to mark the seasons." And he puts two great lights. What are these great lights? The sun and the moon. The sun and the moon. Why doesn't it say the sun and the moon? <laughs> It says the greater light and the lesser light. Anybody know from previous studies, perhaps, of this passage? Those terms in Semitic languages actually refer to deities. So many scholars think that the writer of Genesis is not using those terms in particular to make clear that God is the only deity present in this account. There are no competing deities. Now, if we, if we had the time, um, we could talk about the different creation accounts or myths that other people groups around Israel had. And in all of those accounts, creation occurs through cosmic battle. The different gods fight one another and the earth, the sky, the rivers, humanity emerges out of this Chaos comp is what they call it, this cosmic battle. That is not at all the picture we have here. God speaks, and there it is. And so it's likely that, again, the author of Genesis is making clear that these are are lights in the sky that God has put there, inanimate objects, to govern these different seasons. So the fact that God has put these in place so that we have night and day and we will have winter, fall, spring, and summer that later we know Israel will be celebrating the harvest because of the different seasons that God has established. Yes,
1: Mary. It to my mind, and I it before that, it proves the deity of God and that he's a nurturer.
2: He is a nurturer. This
0: is a very key idea that I think emerges out of our creation account. So let's go back to that idea. So what we've got here now, in day four, we've got the um, the sun and the moon and the, stars. and the stars that God has appointed. And now keep in mind, too, we already know on day one, what happened? God created the light. So These greater light, lesser light, are not creating light. It's already there. God is placing these heavenly bodies in the the vault of the sky to now govern the seasons and the light and darkness for the earth. So we've got the sun and the moon and the stars that are populating the sky What do we have then in day five? Sorry, my handwriting is so bad. (laughs) Who wants to read the account for day five?
1: Then God said, Let the water teem with an abundance of living creatures on the earth. Let birds fly beneath the dome of the sky. And so it happened. God created the great sea mustard, mustard, and all kinds of swimming creatures with which the water came, and all kinds of winged birds. God saw how good it was and God blessed them saying, be fertile and multiply and fill the water of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and morning followed.
0: Day. Great. So day five, sea creatures. And the birds. And where do the birds primarily flock? In the sky. Mm-hmm. So now we've got living creatures in the sea, in the water, and flying around in the sky.
1: Here. Creation. This is very
0: intense. I think it's really worth taking the time to look through what is being highlighted. Words aren't wasted in Scripture, so whatever here is here, it's here for a reason, and it's it's for us to understand who God is. Yeah. So, what happens on day six? Someone want to read that for us? A little bit longer passage.
1: Then God said, let us make man in our image after, the, after our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the flying creatures of the sky, over the livestock, over the whole earth, and every living, every crawling creature that crawls on the land. Thank Thank you. Yeah, we jumped jumped over
0: 24 24 there, but that's okay. And 25.
1: Then God said, let the land bring forth living creatures Mm -hmm. according to their species, livestock, crawling creatures, and wild animals according to their species. And it happened so. God made the wild animals according to their species, the livestock according to their species. And... Everything that crawls on the ground, each according to its species, and God saw that it was good.
0: Great. So now we've got on the sixth day land creatures, including humanity. And that's what. Um, Verses 26 and 27 highlight God said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may what? Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the the creatures moving along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. So together male and female, reflect the image of God. And God blessed them and said to them what he had said to the uh, previous creatures too, be fruitful and increase in number. But these are the only created beings that are created in his image and in his likeness. Now there is discussion too, what are these Hebrew terms here? What do they mean? And archaeological evidence actually helps us in this respect because other cultures would use these terms to refer to images that were carved or erected for a ruler in a part of the realm where that ruler was not. And that image or likeness of the ruler represented the authority of the ruler in his physical absence. So what we have in the equation account is humanity is now a unique part of God's creation and that humanity alone represents the image and likeness of God. That we are to be His representatives to rule to steward all of creation. And we'll talk a bit more about uh, what that what that means and what that looks like. And
1: what I was thinking I mm-hmm. God wanted to to do
0: And that's what what we're going to hear a little bit more in chapter 2 when we look at that doublet of the creation account. So as we wrap up chapter 1, we look at the last couple of verses here. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, made it set apart, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Why was God resting? Was he tired? (laughs) <laughs> all this work no, no. he finished. spoke he's finished that is the way of saying that God finished and he is deity and he rested he is now taking in all that he has created so this completes the creation account from Genesis 1 and what we find that I want to highlight and that Mary has already touched on, is that there are a couple of things we find out from God in this passage. One is that who who is the main character, if you will, in this story of creation? God. He's the only one who is acting. He is the subject. So some people talk about the creation account in Genesis as being anthropocentric. It's about humanity. Well, yes and no, as our rabbi likes to say. Yes, humanity is mentioned here, and humanity has a a specific and an important role. But who is the main topic of creation? It's God. This is telling us who God is, who the God of heaven and earth is, who the God is that Israel will align with. Now, this is another interesting point. Whose scriptures are these that we're reading? Genesis 1 is what? This is the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures but it's not starting with the creation of israel is it when i realized that that kind of just slapped me across the face like wait a minute that's true because it's not just about israel god god is revealing himself to israel personally And I don't want us to miss this because we're going to be running into this soon. Next week we're going to start talking about the prophets and the the importance of this description. God has chosen Israel to have a personal relationship. But this is the God who is the God of everything. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we continue to see the story of God unfold throughout Scripture. But we're just at the end of chapter 1 And we're not going to take as much time going into chapter 2. But what we've got in chapter 1 is we are finding out, one, God is the source of all life. Every living being owes its life to God. And God is the sustainer of all that is living. Now, again, I'm emphasizing this because death is not in the picture, is it? It will be in the picture, won't it? (laughs) But that is not about who God is. No. And for my master's thesis, it was interesting to me. I was doing another topic. I was doing a, um, a theology of our physical, physical, physicality as individuals. And so I was looking at the purity laws in Leviticus. Do you know there are three purity laws that make someone unclean that's not related to sin? Contact with the corpse. What else? bodily fluids being released and the third one is it escapes me it's always the last one isn't it but what I realized is all three of these conditions have an association with death it
1: it's not body? due to sin
0: hmm? it sick body? It's, a, it's a corpse okay. contact yeah. with a, a dead body the release of <laughs> bodily fluids which which frankly are um, life-giving fluids for the man and for the woman. That makes a woman unclean.
2: Leprosy.
0: Leprosy, Leprosy. thank you. Yes, which is the appearance of death, the onset of death. And so it's not because any of these people have sinned necessarily. A woman going through her menstrual cycle is not sinning. This is part of what happens. But she's unclean for a period of time. Unclean people can't be in the presence of God because God is the living and holy God. And I wonder, and there is discussion and debate about this, but getting back to this idea that God is the source and sustainer of life. This is an important understanding of who God is, especially as we move into chapters 2 and 3. So just briefly now, uh, looking at chapter 2, Some people will argue that, well, this is a a different account of creation. And frankly, um, uh, Rick Hess at Denver Seminary has done a lot of research on this, and I'm very persuaded by his his argument that what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is very similar to what we see in the genealogies later in Genesis, the Toledote, where you've got an explanation of the genealogies as a doublet. And what Rick is arguing for Genesis 1 and 2 is that the creation account is a doublet. And there are parallels. When you look at the genealogies that are doublets, you've got similar kinds of things happening with Genesis 1 and 2. For example, the first account is general and broad about the genealogies. The second account gets more specific. What well, we've got in Genesis 1 and 2, we've got this broad stroke, how God has created everything, what he has created. Now in chapter 2, we're going to focus in on some specific elements. And what in particular? Humanity. Humanity's relationship with the Creator, but also the focus is on the man, Adam, Ha Adam, and his relationship to his work, to the world and to his partner. So what you have here now is the unfolding, a picture of, a description of harmonious relationships, the way God has established when he has created us, male and female, in his image. A couple of things to highlight as we begin into uh, chapter 2. It says in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, In Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here, God is the gardener, causing fruit to be produced from the ground. What is one of the roles of humanity? To till the soil. Just as God has brought life-sustaining food from the earth, so we are to sustain life by cultivating food from the earth also. God is the one who has breathed the breath of life into the man who will be called the mother of all the living, Eve. So humanity will participate in the creation of life. Again, I think in the image of God bearing, we aren't the, we're not the source of life, God is, but we participate with him, and he, in a sense, delegates this ability to us to produce life. So now we've got God interacting with the man, Um, And later, I know we've got to move through this a little bit quickly um, in light of time. But it says in verse 18, well, verse 15, we better start up there. The Lord God, and again, just a little note here, rather than referring to God simply as Elohim, which was a general way of referring to God that we saw in chapter 1, now we've got Yahweh Elohim being mentioned. The Lord God. So now it's more specific. Again, it's going into that more specific account of creation. And it's more clearly identifying the God of Israel. What, who thought God of Israel will be. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will s- certainly die. And then God says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a, a helper suitable for him. And then we've got the creation of Eve. I think we're probably all pretty familiar with this account where God takes the rib from the man and creates the woman. And then chapter 2 ends with the statement that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were in harmonious relationship with one another, with God, with the creation. Great. Great. Now we move to chapter 3. <laughs> and I would say that this is actually still a continuation of the story that has started in chapter 2, because at the end of chapter 3, we're closing with the mention of Eden and humanity, uh, Adam and Eve being sent out from Eden. That is what this account began with in chapter 2, the reference to Eden being named and the garden. So we've still got the story going, but now we've got the serpent who is introduced? And I'm sorry, I'm not really keeping um, keeping you on track with the outline, but you've got that point in your notes on the next on the other side of the page. <clears throat> the turning point that happens in Genesis three. So if we look at just the first few verses of Genesis. Says now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, was that what God said? What? What did God say?" <laughs> Right. God said there's just one tree. You can eat from every other tree. There's one tree. What does the serpent say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. I think we know what happens after that. (laughs) Yes?
1: I'm just thinking a question. It was in God's plan to test Adam and Eve. Was it not? He he knew that the serpent would come with this coy, proposal, and challenge. But God knew that. You know that there would be a test, just like he tests us.
2: You know, it to turn out your father. And his, our choices—that's part of the, the nature
0: that he created us. Well, it's—it's it's a possibility, but it's not explicit in the text. No, It doesn't true. say that God is testing. All we know, and and what's what's important is. Uh, uh, what I what I always try to encourage people to do is let's first look at what we see in the text what do we know is there and then we can suggest maybe filling in some things but we need to be careful about what we're filling in and what yeah because because we run into ramifications theologically with that is God testing us well then what does that look like what does that mean well this passage is not explicitly talking about that so let's Wait before going down there what I do think we can observe from this passage though is um, the woman knows that God has told them to eat and to not eat of the fruit she chooses to believe whose words the serpents and act on it Adam also who is with her believes who Basically, the serpent, message of the serpent, and acts on that. So what we have here is humanity, again, turning from the word of God and choosing somebody else's words. Now, again, there's a lot of discussion about, well, Adam was silent, and he's the one who told Eve. We don't know how Eve knew this. The text isn't telling us a lot of the specifics. But what we do know is... If this conversation had only happened between the serpent and the man and sin followed, we would never know if the woman was participating in that sin or not. And it seems that the author of Genesis is making it clear that both the man and the woman are guilty of sin equally. Because both of them have chosen to turn from God's word to them and now has believed and acted on the words of the serpent. Now again, consider what we just heard in chapter 1. God speaks, and everything comes into existence. God speaks to Adam about what to do and what not to do, and, and Eve knows the basic message. But they've chosen to turn away from God, and that's when things fall apart. And so now they have... They realize that they are naked, they're ashamed, God comes and, and the fellowship with God is disrupted. When he asks them, what have you done? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent. and so now we see this disharmony between the man and the woman, between them and creation, between them and the creator. Things are falling apart. And I know we've only got about four minutes left, so I want to t- try to bring this home. In the midst of the consequences that we read about in verses 14 through 19, we've got the serpent being cursed above all livestock, and the land, the ground is cursed, but not, not the woman and not the man. They will bear consequences. More along the lines, I think, of judgment for their decision to turn from God. But what are some of those consequences? One is toil in what? Painful toil in what? Giving birth, being involved in the creation of life. And what's the other toil? Painful toil. (coughs) Working the ground for sustenance, for food. So now the two things, you know, God, we said God is the source and sustainer of all life. And as, our, as his image bearers, to some degree, we are to be his representatives. But now when it comes to participating with him in producing life and in sustaining life, now there's going to be suffering and toil, painful toil. But in the midst of that, we also have hope, don't we? Because when we look in verse 15, what does God say? When he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. We've got an allusion here to the fact that the creator of all things is the one who can redeem all things. And we're getting a clue here that it's going to be through who? Messiah. And even at the end, because this comes right before he addresses the woman and then he addresses the man, and then right after that, we also get a glimmer of God's redemption. Verse 21, The Lord God made garments of sin for Adam and his wife and clothed them.
2: Mm,
0: The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and the flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. When I read these creation accounts, I think the heart of God was broken at this point.
2: Yeah, and that's merciful. Yes. It was merciful.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes, and I think that's very tender care for Adam and Eve and clothing them, but he knows now redemption needs to be brought about and it's not going to be something that they're going to bring about. It is something that he has to orchestrate and carry out. So even in the midst of this heartbreaking situation, the creator of heaven and earth will bring redemption and reconciliation. And we're going to see that more and more as we continue through the grand narrative. So we've got to wrap it up. You had eight o'clock? What I want us to end on, though, is consider... What does it mean for us today knowing these accounts? And one way to think of it is what if we just we just had chapter three and we didn't have chapters one and two? You can
1: have that. It's like saying, I'm going
0: to be 20 years old and never get a child. Okay. You have to be that first before you do. What is so important for us that we. That makes such a big difference in chapter three out of chapters one
2: and two.
1: God over to his creation of man, but the burden of he started. Okay. I've heard it said that our whole situation is corrective measure. That makes you kind of wonder. Why did God decide to do this as a corrective measure? What happened before that? Hmm. It's kind of a deep discussion.
0: I know, we're kind of at the. We can pick it up next week, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that we need to hold on to and to realize that what we have in Genesis 1 through 3 is is a very vivid picture of who God is. The fact that he is good. That he cares about life and sustaining life. And that that is, that is his character. Because if he declares that everything that he has spoken and has come about is good, that's really a reflection of who he is. Right? Right? We're going to also see that as something that's going to come up again about the creator of heaven and earth as we get into the wisdom literature. But that we can trust God that he does have good things for us, even in the midst of our turning away from him. And frankly, I think this helps us understand some of what we are toiling with now. The painful toil that we experience now. And what that's related to. So, like I said, we'll pick it up next week from this point and press on through the Pentateuch and the Prophets. But we need to close for now, so let me just say a word of prayer and we'll be on our way. Lord, thank you that you are patient with us. Thank you that you wait on high to have compassion on us. Thank you, Lord, that you are both sovereign over all things and that you are loving, that you are intimately acquainted with who we are, that you desire relationship with us, that you created us for relationship, not to be isolated from one another or from you. Thank you that you give us community. And even though there's a lot of brokenness in us and around us, that you are the Redeemer and you are the creator of heaven and earth who can bring healing and wholeness and reconciliation. And then, even if we don't see complete healing now, we know that there is a day coming when every tear will be wiped from our eyes because you are moving things forward and that there will be a time when all things are made right, when all things are reconciled to you. Thank you that we are allowed to be a part of your plan and one of your children, a part of your family. So, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and ask that you would fill them and direct them the rest of this week that you would reveal yourself to each of us more clearly, um, day by day, as creator of heaven and earth. We thank you and we praise you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.